what do you do to get to know somebody? What do you do to get to really know a person? What kind of things do you do? When you start dating and you have a new girlfriend or boyfriend, you, you, know, you go on some dates, you talk about life, you meet each other's friends, eventually you might meet each other's parents, you talk about struggles and successes you had in life, maybe you, <laughs> you pass a little gas and see where you're really at, but um, well, that happens. I mean, that's, didn't you read that book? Everybody does it. It's natural. But you know, there's different ways, <laughs> there's different ways to really get to know somebody. I think about the resume, and you read through the resume, you learn about their past, where they've been, where they've worked, you, uh, you call their references, you interview them, and then you can learn a lot just in that portion. But then you get them on board and you walk out, watch how they interact with the other teammates. You, you watch how they respond to adversity and how they respond to training. You, you invite them to a company barbecue. We had one yesterday at the park. In fact, it was kind of funny. I saw Tom and Susie Siders walking through the park in the middle of our barbecue, which was cool. Um, it's always kind of funny, like when you see somebody you know and other people. What's that? I didn't feed him. <laughs> I had to like run across the park. I saw him. I'm like, I know those people. But it's always kind of funny because like when you see somebody that you know out in public and all your people are watching, like, man, like, you know people. This is kind of cool. But, you know, point is, is that you, you listen to their personal struggles and you just get to know the people in your workplace. We, we all know we spend a lot of time with the people we work with, sometimes more than our families. So I think about Scott, Pastor Scott. I've gotten to know him pretty well over the last decade. And every Friday morning, he and I meet. Pretty much, I think every Friday for the last seven years, we've met with, with a few exceptions. And we talk about a lot of things. We talk about church. We talk about you all. Most of it's good. No, it really is good. We're extremely blessed by this church. Um, we talk about our person. The first person I call. Um, you know, he's got challenges and difficulties. He'll pick up the phone and call me. Uh, we'll talk about how I beat him in fantasy football for two years in a row and things like that. But we get to know each other. It's a caring relationship. And so I've learned some things about Scott. I've learned that, that he loves when people laugh at his jokes, just like I do. Um, I learned that he's a pretty good uh, guitar player. I learned that he has at least one tattoo, a butterfly right here on the small of his back. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually on his ankle. Um, no, it's not. I'm kidding. That I know of. I mean, I haven't seen all. Okay, anyway. Is that awkward? Okay. Um, he is the most optimistic Colorado sports fan that I have ever met in my entire life. I'm not kidding you. Rockies could go 30 and 130 the season before, and it's the first day of opening season. He's going to give me the full details about why this year is the year, by God. The Rockies are going to win it all. Okay, he just amen that. Well, we're still praying, God, that one year there will be a year. Um, but he's very loyal. We've got to know each other. And the truth is that people that were alive with Jesus, the people that spent time with him, they knew him pretty well. But they actually still had a lot of misunderstandings about Jesus. It, it kind of makes sense when you think, and the king came, but he looked different than the king that they were expecting to see. Jesus performed miracles. And when you're, when you're here living this normal life and you see a guy over here performing all these crazy miracles, there's going to be some kind of a, a lack of connection, some kind of a difference between you all, and I don't really understand how you do all that, Jesus. 
He spoke in stories and parables, which as we know, if you read the New Testament, it was kind of difficult for these people to understand at times. Uh, Jesus was very counterintuitive. I mean, he taught, like his interaction with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I mean, he always kind of spun the situation around and he had this unique way of getting into the minds of the people he was talking to and uh, at times very cynical as well. And of course, Jesus was perfect. He's the only perfect person that ever walked this earth and he did it in the flesh while he was also in the spirit. People still misunderstand him today. Um, Scott sent me an article. There are at least five people in the world right now who are claiming to be Jesus. You can, you can, you can Google search and read for yourself. What's kind of interesting is that they're, they're like spread out all over the world. There's one in um, Russia. There's one in Tokyo. There's one in Africa. And it kind of makes sense because I guess if they're both in the same country, that'd be kind of weird, right? Like, 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 which one are you? But um, there's still a misunderstanding about Jesus. And he warned about this. He said, if possible, to deceive the elect, that's us. But he also said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Me, the real me. So when you make a decision to become a disciple, you decide in your heart that Jesus is the Lord and he is the Messiah. When you, when you, when you choose that in your heart, you start this journey of spending your entire life to know him better to really intimately know Jesus. And the Gospels explain this. The Gospels are the four books at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they do a great job of explaining and outlining what the disciples' interactions with Jesus was like. And some of the people that Jesus met in their element of sin and healed and brought to a Gospel message, and it's all documented there. One of those Gospels is the Gospels of Luke. Luke was a physician and a factician, and he was a person that spent a great deal of the, the end of his life documenting and recounting the life of Jesus from the time he was walking here on earth to the time he died and then rose. And of course, then he wrote the book of Acts, which really does a great job um, factually recounting what happened after Jesus left and um, went back to heaven with the Father. So Luke 24 in the Gospel of Luke is the story of, that's what we've been studying in this series called Seven Miles, the story of these, uh, these two men. And um, we read about an intimate interaction between the three of them, an intimate interaction. And the more that, that you understand this little journey that they had together, the more you see that when you have an intimate relationship with someone, you open each other up. You open your heart up, and it opens theirs. And there's a mutual effect there. But as we're going to see in the scriptures today, you open up, but in this case, these men were opened up. Opened up by their time with Jesus. We're going to see that it's the byproduct of the result of knowing Jesus intimately. And so it starts with Jesus opening their eyes. Opened eyes. Now, Scott did a really nice job talking a couple weeks ago about how these two men's eyes were opened. Okay, and Scripture was, uh, verse 31 there says, and then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And we learned about how these two men were walking down the road and this, this guy who ends up being Jesus comes alongside of them and starts talking with them and they, they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. Presumably, Jesus had a, a different body 
after he came and rose from the grave. And it says scripturally, and so there's that. And some scriptures, in fact, say that the people that saw Jesus after he resurrected thought he was a ghost. Okay, they were kind of freaked out. So we don't know exactly what he looked like when he appeared to them, but they clearly did not recognize him. Okay, we know that. And yet when they invited Jesus to join them for dinner, okay, they were walking along this route and there was a village and they said, Jesus, would you please come eat with us? And he did, and when they sat down, and as soon as Jesus broke the bread, it said that the disciples then could recognize him. Now, now I just, I don't fully, again, I don't fully get that. I don't know how I could be looking at somebody this whole time on this journey and then sit down and all of a sudden, boom, I now know who they are. But but the point is, is that they, they couldn't recognize him. Now, I think, and it's widely regarded, that one of the reasons, or maybe the primary reason that that happened was because Jesus wanted them to listen, he wanted them to listen to his words uh, and ponder them versus just you know, taking his words blindly, no pun intended. Okay, so um, that's what happened with these two men. They couldn't see him, even though they were told, scripturally, Jesus said many times, I'm going to have to die, I'm going to have to leave, but I'm going to come back on the third day, and they knew this. You'd think that they were expecting this, but they still could not recognize him. So we too have to be looking We have to be looking for evidence of Jesus in our lives. Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Well, what is the evidence of things not seen? Well, it's it's evidence of the spiritual. It's evidence of Jesus, of God, the Holy Spirit, even though they're not here tangibly for us to see and feel today. However, that scripture kind of implies that there will be tangible proof. It says, the evidence of things not seen. I go back sometimes to the evidence of my life when, when I'm struggling a little bit, when I'm, when I'm down and I don't really feel God. I, I go back and I recount that evidence in my life because there has been evidence. I think about the times of breakthrough when I was coming up against something, a sin or a problem in my life and God provided breakthrough. I think, about the, I think about the moments of, of, um, of blessing. I think about the moments of revelation when God puts something into my mind or heart that I'm not supposed to know, like I'm not that smart. I think about the times of peace when all I wanted was just a little bit of peace, a little bit of understanding. That's evidence in my life that God really exists. And we have to go back and look for that, recount those moments and look for it again. We have to be looking, and we also have to be listening. We have to be listening. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Do not know. Speak with him. Listen. Look for him. Watch for evidence of him in our lives. Can you hear God when he speaks, or is the the voices of the world, are they drowning his voice out? Talk to him. Listen. So, interestingly enough, Jesus appeared to these men and then the disciples just for a short time. It was just a little bit of time. And then he left. And in the same way in our lives today, I feel like sometimes Jesus, God, his presence comes, we feel him, and then all of a sudden he disappears. Or maybe we just lose sight of him. We lose focus of him. He's present every day in our lives. Just the same way he was when he brought you close to him and accepted you. The same way that he answered your prayers and provided the blessings unto you. I've learned that 
there's a maturation process that happens in a believer, myself, a growth, that happens when I start to realize that God is the source of every good thing. And he's also the source of hope in the midst of every bad thing. And that's a pivotal moment in all of our walk with Jesus when we realize that he is the source of those good things and he gives us hope when we can't otherwise get hope. Nine, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. He's saying, it's me. Look. Touch me and see. He says, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Did you get that? It's the same Christ. It's the same Christ that they knew before, and he has proof. He says, look at my hands and look at my feet. You see it right there. Most of you know Jesus lived, and you know he died, and you know he rose from the grave. He's working in your life, but you still, you still want to take your fingers and you still want to put it in the hole. You still want that proof. Got pregnant for the first time, finally. Got to see the holes. Got my dream job. See your feet, Jesus. Keys to the house, new keys to the house. Right? Somebody paid for my latte at Starbucks line. Are you real, Jesus? Are you real? I say that in jest, but I'm being honest with you. You want to touch the holes in, your, in his hands and, and his feet so you can be sure that he's real. You have an intimate relationship, and he's always going to be fighting for you every day of your life. You just got to look for him. You just got to look for him. Relationship with Jesus begins to open our minds. He says in, in verses 45 to 47, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Do you really believe the Bible? Like everything in the Bible? Like even the story about that 100-year-old lady, Sarah, who got pregnant and had a baby at 100 years old? you believe that? Even the, the story about the, the, the big strong wall at Jericho that came crumbling down when Joshua and his cronies were outside dancing around playing trumpets, do you believe that? What about the story about those three guys with the funny names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And that king with the funny name threw him, threw him into the fire that was seven times hotter than it had ever been, and they came out alive? Even that? You believe that one too? Sometimes we have to give up what we think is reality and understand what we don't understand. Understand what we don't understand. What do you mean by that? I'm going to show you something. I'm going to do a little science today. Is that okay? Anybody? anybody I, I just want to know, how many of you believe that there's a fourth dimension? Does anybody believe there's a fourth dimension? Forget about what it is. Do, do you believe it? It's okay. Yes or no? So a very small number. Well, I'm going to show you something, and hopefully this doesn't get too messy. But I've got, I've got a bucket of paint, I've got a ball, I've got a marker, and I've got my little helper, Donald. Donald Duck, okay? This is Donald, and Donald lives in a three-dimensional world, okay? I've got this rectangle. This is a three-dimensional object. It's actually a stack of papers, but it looks like a rectangle. It's three dimensions, X, Y, and Z, 
Okay, three dimensions. Now, Donald, he lives in a three-dimensional world. Does that make sense? Can you see this? This is his world, okay? Now, if I were to take just one little slice of this paper off, okay, that's going to represent a two-dimensional world. You see how it's only two-dimensional? It's got X and Y, but there's no, there's no thickness. There's no depth. And so I want to introduce you to my two-dimensional friend. Her name is Tootie. Like the Facts of Life, that lady from the Facts of Life, do you remember her? Two-dimensional Tootie. Did you get the catch there? This is Tootie, okay? She's a little stick figure. She's a green stick figure. And this is her world. Her entire world exists in two dimensions. She can see left and she can see that anything that exists in Tootie's world in a two-dimensional frame of reference she can see. If this little dot is her home, actually, I'm going to draw her house. This is going to be the worst house you've ever seen. So this is Tootie's house. Can you see it? It's a two-dimensional house. It has no height, but it has a floor. So what if I have, a, I have a red ball in my hands? Would you all agree that I have a red ball in my hands? Somebody, here, Darcy, catch this ball. Make sure it's real. Catch it. Catch it. Okay. Is it real? Throw it back. All right. He says this is a real ball. And we all agree this is a real ball. But I want to show you something. I say, I'm going to go ahead and give this ball to Tootie. Okay? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to mark it with blue paint. See the blue paint? So that you can see where it's going to land when I give it to Tootie. Here we go. So I'm going to drop the ball. And I have given it to her. But watch this. So this is, this is the ball that I've given her. It's, it exists in two dimensions. Before I gave her that ball, this was her grass, her lawn. And it was just existing there. But can you imagine if she was standing there watching in her two-dimensional world as I dropped the ball into her frame of reference? What happens? All of a sudden, this blue line, I guess it's going to look like a... In our world, we live in three dimensions. And by the way, if you were 2D... Can you imagine in our world, if you're 2D and then all of a sudden this, this ball just shows up out of nowhere in your, in your lawn? Wouldn't that kind of freak you out? Oh my God, you wouldn't believe what just happened. This ball just showed up in my lawn. Everybody's like, yeah, Dodo, whatever. You know, get some Xanax or something. But here's my point. Here's my point. This is our reality. We see in three dimensions. And, and I have theories on what a fourth dimension really looks like. I won't do that for this sermon. But sometimes... You have to understand what you don't understand. And just because something exists out of our reality and out of our frame of reference doesn't mean that it's not real. And so when God supernaturally from some fourth dimension or 20th dimension or wherever he does it, puts something into your life that you can't see, you don't have to doubt it. It doesn't mean it's not real. Just because we live in three dimensions doesn't mean that there's not a spiritual dimension or wormholes or anything else. Here's what I want to get at. If you struggle to believe that God would part the Red Sea so that the Israelites could get away from the Egyptians, and if you struggle to believe that Peter could get out of a boat and literally walk on water, if you struggle to believe that God might cast down fire for Elijah to prove to the prophets of Baal that he is the real... Let me put it a different way. If you were a person living in the remote jungles of the world, and all of the, the only light that you know is the sun that rises in the morning. Somebody shows up to you and gives you a light bulb, and they turn a switch and turn that light bulb on. 
Can you imagine what that would be like? The first time you saw a light bulb, you could turn on and off with a switch. That's mind-blowing. Can you imagine if a person in the 15th century was given an iPad, and you went to YouTube, and you, and you started playing the video of humans walking on the moon, and you played that for them, that whole experience, and you point up in the sky, see that? Yeah, this is us walking on it. Can you imagine? I mean, you, you can imagine, but they can't. That's a new reality for them. It's a new normal. And sometimes we have to let God open up our minds to things that we don't understand. He exists everywhere and in all places and at all times. I'll tell you a story. Most of you know I, I played football after college professionally, and I was in training camp with the San Diego Chargers 2003. I was having one of the most difficult times of my life because I was kind of, I mean, I'm a mama's boy, and I left home, and I go down there, and I have no friends. I got no car. The only food that we had to eat was within walking distance was blimpies, but you can only eat so much salmon in a week before you get mercury poisoning. So it was a, it was a hard time for me, but a chaplain showed up named Miles McPherson, and he invited me to go to a Bible study. And that night, I invited Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And you know what I learned? This is that I wasn't ready to be open-minded until I was broken-hearted. And most of you aren't really ready to be open-minded until you're broken-hearted. Think about it. A life without crisis or tragedy gives us little reason to have to rely on God. He opens our eyes and he opens our minds by showing us that we need him. So you all study God's word. You know it. Even if the only scripture that you get is from coming to church every week, you know it well enough to know that you believe it's true. So when life's hurting you, don't walk away from the truth. And when your thoughts start to become focused on your problems and your pain, stay rooted in the word. It'll open up your mind. It'll open up that narrow-mindedness so that you can see God. I've learned faithfulness breeds faith. Some people have said some pretty hurtful things to me, even this year. And I started to believe that that was true. And I had to sit on the end of my bed every morning and just pray and give thanks to God and over time let him remind me who I am. You see, back to the scriptures, these two, and they didn't believe until they believed, until Jesus revealed himself to them. They had to see him, but look at what John twenty twenty nine says. You believe, Jesus said, because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe who haven't seen me. You gotta trust his word and trust the evidence. And you keep saying, you're like, Brian, you keep talking about evidence. Well, I think most of us know like a drug addict or an alcoholic that gave their heart to Christ and that God healed that. If you, if you don't know anybody, talk to Darcy and Annette. This is their world. They see this on the regular. We all know a repentant sinner, like a Patriots fan that gave their hearts to Christ and now they follow, well, any other team. Christ turned their lives around too. I, I had to buy an autographed piece of memorabilia for a friend of mine, a Tom Brady autographed piece. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, but I did it because I loved him. Here's the point. Jesus said he would come back for the disciples, and he did. And Jesus said he's going to come back again for you and I, and he will. So it's time to get ready. All right, thirdly, knowing Jesus intimately leads to opened hearts. It leads to opened hearts. In verse 32 on this same scripture uh, passage in, in Luke 24, 
It says they asked each other, these two men, Cleopas and the other gentleman that was with him, asked each other. They said, were our hearts not burning within You've got to let his love set your heart on fire. Like, Brian, is this a romance novel? No, I mean, kind of, but not really. But y'all are familiar with the phrase, Jesus set our hearts on fire? Jesus set my heart on fire? There you go. It's right there. And what's crazy about this is what these two men failed to recognize with their eyes, they began to recognize with their heart. Their hearts. And we all have a burning desire in our hearts for what burned in Jesus's. Passion for righteousness, compassion for the poor and poor in spirit, warm beaches with palm trees with your wife and no kids and vacations and all that. No, that's just, sorry, that's just my, my heart, but that's passions for what I have. But, but Jesus had passions for righteousness and compassion for poor in spirit. And here's what I've learned, is that it's a really good idea when you have moments in your life when your heart starts to, to burn with the things that you know please God, when, when you take care of somebody in need, when you bless an orphan or a widow, when you stand up in righteous anger for something that you know that Jesus would have stood up for, is to start paying attention to that feeling in your heart. Because when you recognize that feeling, you begin to be able to make the same decisions later on in life when you can't see, when your mind's not. Paul wrote, he said, never let the fire in your heart go. Never let it go out. Keep it alive. Serve the Lord. When you hope, be joyful. When you suffer, be patient. When you pray, be faithful. Share with God's people who are in need. And welcome others into your homes. You know, I know from being a part of this church that, that the world is weighing a lot of you down right now. It's hardening your hearts. And just like when somebody hurts me, my heart begins to get a little bit harder around the outside. And I've always said that I believe that it's okay to have a little bit of protection around your heart because God doesn't want the world to just pummel us and trample on us and for us to feel like we have no meaning or purpose. But that, that shell around our heart has to be pliable enough and permeable enough so that God can soften it, so that Jesus can soften it, and that we'll allow him to guide our lives and govern it. Um, four years ago, I got to go to Brazil, and I got to, I got to go teach um, to like a thousand teenagers in this gigantic auditorium. It was, it was one of the coolest things. I had a translator, uh, and that was the first time that I'd ever done that. I mean, I was just moved, but the whole trip was defined by me like sobbing. So I feel like it's all I did. The first night I got there, they had a birthday party for one of the church members. And they went to this house and everybody ate and had a great time. And then they started playing songs and singing to the person. Like every three or four minutes, somebody would stop and just start sharing these stories about that person's life. And I'm just crying. I mean, I'm just losing it. I feel like this weirdo. And uh, the lead pastor was, uh, you know, he was interpreting the whole time. But what really rocked me was the next morning. I got invited to go to the orphanage on the west side of town. I had never been to an orphanage before. That was my first time. And so I jumped in the van and we drove about 30 miles. And we get out and all it is is this big giant cast iron wall. And it was a pretty rough area. So they slide this door open and I walk in and here's all these little like two and three year olds smiling and laughing and having a great time. And my heart started to get 
moved. It started to burn a little bit. And then I go to the next room, and then there's like these like six to ten-year-old kids dancing and having a great time. And I go to a third room, and here's like eight to 13-year-old girls, just girls. So I start interacting with them. I, I, I don't speak Portuguese, but I, I interacted the best I could. And shortly after that, uh, one of these girls comes over with a pad and paper and a pen, and she hands it to me. And the interpreter said, she said, Brian, you're, you know, in English. Okay, I don't really know what to write. So I sit down, and I just kind of close my eyes and start praying, and God begins to give me a word for this girl. And so I write probably 10, 10 lines on this notebook paper. And I'm, I'm zoning out as I'm writing, and I have no idea what's going on around me. So I get done, and I, I look up, and I hand the notebook, and all of a sudden, I, I, there's a line of like 20 girls with their notepad and their pens, and I just lost it. I just, I just started bawling, and I, I felt moved by what moves Christ for these orphans. And so I wrote in every one, and for every single girl, God gave me some kind of word. Now, I don't know if it was exactly right or not. I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I just wrote. But I do know that on every page there was some big, like, teardrop bubbles <laughs> on, the, on the words. And, and, you know, I realized after that that his love was setting my heart on fire. And I learned that he was resensitizing me to my desensitized heart. He was resensitizing me to the things that mattered most to him. And it's kind of sad that I had to go from a first world country to, I guess Brazil is still a first world country, but there's pockets in any country that are third world at best. And that was one of them. He resensitized my desensitized outlook on humanity. Fourthly, an intimate relationship with Jesus, knowing Jesus, leads to opened mouths. Open mouths? We're going to go to, to verses 33 and 35 here in Luke 24. It says, There they found the eleven and those with them. Now I want to just preface that. When it says that, that they found the eleven, what, what it means is the two guys, after they sat down and had broke bread and had dinner with Jesus, then he left, they immediately turned back and went back to Jerusalem. And they did so that they could find the disciples and tell them what happened. Well, here's what it says. He uh, found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. When he broke the bread. We need to be encouraged and empowered to speak about Jesus. We need to speak to anyone who will listen. And you know what, guys? Sometimes you need to speak to somebody who won't listen. Like some, they need to hear it no matter what. And you need to be um, discerning about that. But these two disciples, they begin immediately sharing. And yeah, I know what you might be thinking. You're saying, Brian, if, if a dead man showed up to me that predicted his death and his resurrection, well, Tootie in the ball, coming into her reality. I mean, she might be so scared that she wouldn't tell somebody, but I would think that most of us, we couldn't wait to go back to our spouses or our friends or our church and say, I know this is going to sound crazy, but you have to hear what happened. Jesus appeared to us, the real Jesus, the real Jesus. How do you feel about what Jesus did for you right now? How do you really feel about it? Matthew 12, 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. 
And that scripture suggests that if, if your heart is in fact full of love and understanding for Jesus, that you can't help but to share it. You are so compelled to share when your heart is full of love and understanding of Christ. Second grade teacher always told us sharing is caring. But I want to encourage you with something. You don't need to be Billy Graham to share the gospel. You just got to believe he is who he says he is. Well, how do I know that? Well, look in Luke 12, 11 through 12. Luke wrote, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit himself will teach you that in every in that very hour, what you ought to say. And we were joking, right? I have to trust the Holy Spirit to govern and guide my words. But the point is, is you don't have to be the most eloquent, well-educated theologian to share Christ. You just got to believe in your heart that he is who he said he is. You got to open your mouths. You got to share. And I've said this before. I'm not a believer in that verbiage that says, you know, share the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. It's always necessary. And you should always be sharing whenever you have the opportunity to share Christ. And I also know that um, when you share, you get a deeper conviction of things. Right? Any teachers in the room? Who's a teacher in any capacity? When you teach, Sharon, do you not get more convicted and more deeply rooted in what you're teaching? Of course. Of course you do. And I also want you to keep in mind one other thing is that it was noted scripturally, it says that the, the disciples before the crucifixion and after were actually hiding in fear. They were freaked out because I think before the crucifixion they thought, well, if I associate with Jesus, then I'm going to get locked up or crucified too. And afterwards, their leader, their Messiah, he's gone. What do we do now? I'm probably still, my life is still probably at risk but what's really cool is that after Jesus appeared to them, they put their lives on the line to share Jesus Christ with other people. And we should be too. And lastly, knowing Jesus intimately leads to opened hands. Opened hands. Verse 31, very briefly, says, And he disappeared from their sight. Jesus disappeared from their sight. Listen, these men and women, these disciples, they didn't want Jesus to go the first time or the second time for that matter. But it was better that he went. You know why? Because after he left, he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit did two things primarily. It allowed the presence of Jesus to be felt at all times, wherever you go, his presence to be with us. But you know what else it did? It allowed us to have the same powers that he has. And that's a sermon coming up here in the next week or two, so pay, pay close attention for that. I want to encourage you that for all of us, it's time to let go of what you're holding too tightly. If you can't open your hands because you're afraid don't expect to improve it. He can't get to it. You got to let it go and you got to be willing to receive in return. Everyone in here that made a decision in your heart and in your mind 
to follow Christ got a second shot at life. You believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and you have a, a duty and a responsibility. I have a duty and responsibility to do something about that. We got to look for Jesus every day in our lives. We got to respond to it by loving, by serving, and by sharing. Let's pray. Father, we live every day in our little realities, you know, our little bubbles, our normal. And yeah, we read about you in the Word. And yeah, I mean, people talk about seeing angels and all these things, but for some of us, it's just really hard to know you're there. From this scripture on these two men that were walking to Emmaus, we're learning a lot. We're learning that you're always with us. We just, we don't recognize it. Some of us aren't looking for you right now. Truly, there's a, there's a very common prayer, Lord, open our eyes and open our hearts, but really we see what you did in these men and the disciples. We see the evidence of your miraculous power, how you heal, how you bless, how you overcome. God, my prayer today is that our hearts would really begin to burn with the things that burn in yours, to have passion, to practice compassion. Lord, let our hands be open and be willing to, for you to take and to give as you see fit. Lord, we can't take anything with us except for our hope for eternity. We love you. We thank you for exchanging your love for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And if anyone in this room does not know what a loving, awesome, powerful God you are, that they would know that today. You care and you want them and you want us to be with you, each and every person. You said it's not your will that any man would perish, but that we would have everlasting life. So we praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Holy Spirit. We thank you. Even when we can't see you, we thank you. You are faithful. Thank you, Jesus.